1895, the state of Ohio had only two automobiles. And wouldn't you know it, they collided. <laughs> so, <laughs> who knows what kind of collision we're going to have in the days ahead. If you dare vote for a decree that God finds abominable and murderous, you will answer to him. God's curse is upon you. How dare you? How dare you? defy him. Strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. When is the time for justice? The time is now. I'm tired of waiting for incremental solutions that never make any increments and never bring solutions. So when is the time for justice? It's now. I said to every sinner, God broke the law for love. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. If the court in a nation is the highest authority, then you've found a God. If the people are the highest authority, then you've found another God. If, if there's no transcendent law governing over this nation or any other nation, then you've found another God. It's never too early to learn that the government is a greedy piglet that suckles on a taxpayer's teat until they have sore, chapped nipples. Take the guns first, go through due process second. Please clap. Just as the church has an obligation to be Christian, just as the family has an obligation to be Christian, just so the school has an obligation to be Christian, and the state, and your calling, and the school, every area of life must recognize Christ as Lord and Savior. Welcome to Cross and Crown Radio, an unapologetically Christian reconstructionist talk show for your edification and your enjoyment. Jesus is King. No neutrality, no exile, no surrender. My name is Jason. I'm with my friends Jordan and John. How are you, brothers? Howdy, howdy. Doing good. I'm feeling very post-mill today. That's the sound <laughs> of the post-millennial hope right there. <laughs> yes. Amen, indeed. Well, you guys having a good week so far? Yeah, I'm just loving this music. Can we just listen to this for a second? I'm just basking <laughs> I know, in this. I, I prefer Marvel. <laughs> yeah, we can get into the DC Marvel. Yeah, world. but it's post mill week. It's it's Superman music. It <laughs> just goes together. It does. It goes great together. Well, are hey, those are those Christian comic books? <laughs> They're you, all Christian. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's a lot in there. We can, right. we can all get the best into stories that. are Christian stories. Absolutely, that's the best story there is. Mm-hmm. The story of redemption. Well, hey, this is. Another episode, the first ever episode. What are we on now? Episode nine. This is nine. That's almost ten. That's almost ten. We're almost the double digits. <laughs> We're getting there. We're How getting did we make close. it this long? I can't even tell you. We're so grateful for you listeners Thanks and, to you. and 
all of your encouragement, all of um, really just your interaction, helping us get this podcast off the ground. It's been a fun journey so far with a whole lot of stuff ahead, I'm sure. Um, We have an intense episode today. We have some things we want to do in the first half um, pertaining to social justice, American chattel slavery, some comments we heard um, on, on a radio show. And also later, though, we want to talk about post-millennialism, also known as debt post-mill, and just kind of handle some key texts, talk about that. That's a topic, again, we'll come back to often. But before we get into that, I just want to say, hey, a reminder, you can go to our website and check out the gear store. Did you get your snap back yet? I Actually, I haven't. Yeah. <laughs> you got to get on that, man. I don't know if I can pull off the snap back. I think you'd be fine. It'd be good. We still we have this promotion going on, 10% off. You can just type in CC Store Launch there, get a baby onesie, get a mug, get a snapback, sport the awesome-looking cross and crown gear. You can check it out. And that really, that sale, I think it ends the end of March, so make sure you go there. All right, so, gentlemen, we have, we have a lot to get to. We want to jump right in first, though, with some comments that were made on the Cross Politics show they had Douglas Wilson on to talk about the Shepherds Conference Q&A. We, I think we hinted at it last week a little bit. We've covered it. We've, We've covered it in some detail. This already. whole snafu with social justice, it's not going to go away. It's a conversation that's going to keep being there. And we need to keep being you know, clear as we can, define our terms, um, say what we mean, that sort of thing. Um, but really the whole kerfuffle surrounded the Q&A there at the Shepherds Conference. And in Phil Johnson's own words, it was a dumpster fire. I think he said that on Twitter. Um, And I didn't even get a chance to listen to all of it, but I listened to part of it, and I agree with his assessment. It seemed like that. Um, But it is a conversation that should be had. Anyway, this this, um, discussion involved what guys like uh, Al Mohler was there. Al Mohler was there. Lig Duncan was there. Sinclair Ferguson, Mark Dever. uh, There's one more I'm missing. I don't remember, but all those guys, interestingly enough, they're invited to MacArthur's conference. They didn't sign the social justice statement. And so clearly there was like a divide there between MacArthur and, and his oh, friends. Oh, MacArthur. Yeah, that was the other. Oh, yeah. How yeah. Could I forget? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> was Phil Johnson there? Yeah, Phil Johnson. Yeah. Okay. He, he led the Q&A discussion and he just sort of just went out and asked, you know, hey, why didn't you guys sign the statement? You know, and he, he put it in their court. Which I, at least I appreciate the the you know, yeah. direct question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't skirt around it, I guess. Just just say it. Why didn't you sign it? And they all kind of gave their answers. Uh, Mark Dever said he's not much of a statement guy. You know, Al Mohler. <laughs> Al Mohler. Ultimate cop out. <laughs> which, which apparently he signed the Nashville statement. Yeah. But, you know, I don't, whatever. And maybe he's just not a social justice statement guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then you had. And then he said he didn't remember what was in the statement. Yeah. Oh, that's right. He did say that. Yeah, he said, no, he said that he didn't like the first version. Then the next version was much better. But if there was something that was something that he disagreed with in the statement, he couldn't remember what it was. Right. And he had come to talk about social justice. So, yeah, or this this conference was about these sorts of issues. Anyways. Yeah. Well, and then and then Al Mohler basically said, look, I didn't really get to participate in this. I would have wanted to maybe say things differently. I mean, we all would probably to some degree. We've, we've shared that before in a previous episode. Yeah. Um, I don't, and I don't think any of them were trying to be like disingenuous. I think they, I think a lot of them didn't really want to be direct. 
for one reason or another. And you can, I mean, it's not a, it's not a huge leap to say that if you if you watch it, there was just a lot of awkward long silences where nobody was answering and no one wanted to really jump in and give a direct answer. Well, if, yeah. if one thing is clear is that whatever you say about this issue, you're going to really tick off somebody. Right, and they're cognizant of that. I think. Right, and, and yeah. you're gonna you're gonna make enemies of somebody if you have an opinion on this. Right, and uh, you know you're. We should be very clear about what we believe. We should be very clear about defining terms. But you know, even at the very very beginning of the conversation, before you even get to defining terms, we should be clear about clarity being a virtue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like just starting with the idea that clarity. And good biblical nuance and distinctions is a good thing and not something to be disregarded because you just say it's an important issue. Absolutely. And that's what we try to do. We try to lay out at least five groups and five different perspectives on this topic and the episode on social justice. Yeah. So, so you can refer to that episode if you didn't mm-hmm. get a chance to listen to it. You can go back and, and um, hear our attempts at being clear, um, offering some sort of clarity to the discussion because we readily acknowledge that you have Marxist you know, liberals who are trying to, they're basically communists. They, that's what mm-hmm. they want. Yep. Um, but we, we believe in justice, biblical justice, biblical social justice in society. So mm-hmm. we don't want to get too far off in the weeds on that. We've already talked about it, but we do want to interact with this clip. So that's the big thing you're going to hear in this clip first, Ligon Duncan, uh, he's going to speak. And then some of the guys across politic are going to pick it up. Doug, Douglas Wilson's there. And that's really where we want to interact with some of his statements because I, I think we're still missing something there. So I'll, I'll go ahead and play that clip, and then we'll go from there. you have that one? Um, My concern on racial issues is that I do not drive our grandchildren into the arms of the LGBTQIA issue. Uh, where, where already our younger people don't want to touch that, that issue because they know that it immediately marginalizes them. So one thing I want to make sure I do is I want to look hard at my own tradition and my own tradition's failures with regard to the communion of the saints, the image of God in man, um, loving our neighbors, and, and look hard at where we failed, own up to that, so that I don't, uh, you know, you know the argument that's out there. Uh, the church's failure in LGBTQIA area, not to affirm it, is just like its failure in the area of slavery and and segregation. I want to break that argument apart. And I want to say slavery and segregation was a failure of biblical fidelity. Caving into LGBTQIA uh, affirmation is also a failure of biblical fidelity. And where I'm standing, I'm standing there because I'm standing on the Bible. And not because I'm trying to curry the favor of the culture but because I want to tell the church, don't seek the favor of the culture. And that means you have to say no to the culture where it's wrong. And then you can say yes to the culture where it's right, not because the culture said it, because the word said it. Right. That, so that my, that's, that's exactly what I was wanting to grab. And, the, and my, so I'm assuming that if he were sitting here, the yeah. comeback to you would be the reason why I'm willing to associate my name with woke church and not with social justice statement is because I think on this issue, mm-hmm. um, he says, I'm not trying to curry favor with the culture. And he goes on to say, that's ridiculous. And you might as well become an atheist if yeah, you yeah, yeah. do that. Yeah. He, but apparently his argument is, is that what Eric Mason is doing with woke church is closer to biblical truth and biblical fidelity 
than social justice right. statement. And so I think at, at, mm. yes, and at, that at, that's the point where I would say, okay, men, you're all inerrantists, right? Yeah. You, the, you affirm the inerrancy of the Bible and everything that it teaches. And so I would say, let's have a Bible study. Yeah. Okay, let's have a Bible study. So was um, Philemon a Colossians 4-1 master, right? right. Uh, masters, remember you have a, a master in heaven. Right. It's a, so, and was John Broadus, uh, one of the founders of Southern Seminary, a slave owner, Yeah. Was he? did he follow Paul's instructions to slave owners. If you let's say you're right, you're in a slave owning society, wasn't your idea. You know, I've I've got all no. kinds of, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll get there. We'll, we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I I agree with the no. What was that? What was that chocolate Knox? I believe. Nox. Yeah, it was yeah. Knox. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack here, and so just to wrap it all up. So they started playing the the Lig Duncan quote and in that quote Ligon was basically saying that there is this issue of young people his view young people in the church are maybe being pulled into this discussion of LGBTQ and the fusing of the LGBTQ issue and other social justice issues and the fusing of those and Lincoln Duncan wants to clearly bifurcate those two issues stand on the Bible and say from the Bible I can say the LGBTQ issue is TQ issue is one thing and biblical justice and racial seg uh, segregation and slavery is a complete other issue. I don't want to stand on the Bible. I want to be against slavery and segregation while also being against the LGBTQ lobby. And what's like totally, uh, you know, not an offensive statement. It doesn't could, seem very controversial for Orthodox possibly, Christians. What not could possibly all. be wrong with that statement? Nothing is wrong with that statement. Before I go in and I talk about Douglas Wilson's response, I want to just mention, yeah, of course, with regard to Ligon Duncan and Al Mohler and others, I think there there is criticism that they could that could be levied at them in terms of maybe over the decades in their sermons, there hasn't been a focus on specifics around social justice. John, you wrote a great article on this. A lot of times, uh, it can be seen as acceptable in the reform community to talk about abstract justice, talk about topics of well, we want. A justice out in society abstractly right they get in trouble and they get specific right mm -hmm. that's when they start making enemies right. or making you know stepping on toes right and so over the years they've done that so few times that now they're sort of johnny come lately when the issues start getting specific and they can't point back to anything tangible in terms of like some long series they've done on specifically applying biblical law to these issues so now they're sort of between a rock and a hard place but in any case, so the guys at Cross Politic respond and they throw it to Douglas Wilson. They say, hey, you know, is it is it a problem that, okay, he's okay with writing the forward, Ligon Duncan to to Eric Mason's Woke Church book. Right. He's okay with being associated with them, but then he's not okay with signing the social justice statement and being associated with that wing. Isn't, and they're saying, isn't that sort of a contradiction for him? Isn't he says he cares about? He wants to ride both sides of that issue. Is doesn't that show where his loyalties really lie? Right, it sounds like a classic false dilemma to me. Right. Why? Why are there only two options? Yeah, right. And and <laughs> exactly. Ligon says, do you, do you have to be like an LGBTQ whatever? Yes. You know, just list the alphabet. Do you have to be like a, like a homosexual affirming liberal Presbyterian or like a dispensationalist? Yeah, those pietist? are your only two choices. You know, I, I don't yeah. get it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so he's they're pointing that out. And then Douglas Wilson responds to 
um, Lincoln Duncan's strong stand on we need to stand on the Bible, and that means a strong stand against slavery and segregation as a failure of biblical fidelity. Mm-hmm. And Douglas Wilson responds by saying, we need to have a Bible study. He says, okay, let's have a Bible study. Let's go to Philemon, and let's look at how he treated Onesimus and what his, what the uh, exhortations for him were. And then let's look at the founder of Southern Seminary, John Broadus, and how he owned slaves and you know what kind of slave owner was he, and would, and uh, you know would would he have been in violation of the commands for how masters were to treat slaves in the New Testament and, and, and in biblical law, and what he's <clears throat> subtly doing, and and this is I think Douglas Wilson, you'll see this a lot. He points to inerrancy. We're inerrantists, right? We're all inerrants. We believe in the Bible, and so if we want to stand on the Bible, we have to be okay with what happened. We have to be okay with. Uh, a version of biblical or a version of U.S. chattel slavery that occurred in the United States. And so like the implication is, uh, you know, so because Paul didn't condemn Philemon for having Onesimus as a slave, therefore, in order to be against U.S. chattel slavery, you have to give up biblical inerrancy. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, at the very least a very big misdirection because in in biblical law, you have not just one version of slavery. You have multiple versions of slavery. You have, first of all, economic restitution slavery. And so this is where there was no evil behavior. There was just somebody who alone didn't go through. Maybe there was a famine. Maybe there was a death in the family. Maybe a, a, a business project went bad and they had to pay back the loan. And so they were indebted and, and enslaved to that owner until they paid it back. And then there was a jubilee every seven years that would cancel those debts and that would be over with. That's one type of slavery that was described. And there was laws that were all um, regulated that kind of slavery and all forms of slavery and required that, you know, there be one law for all the nations, whether they're foreigners or not and so forth. The next was criminal restitution slavery. And so if you stole from someone in the Old Testament um, or at any time, the idea was that you were to pay back through your labor. If you couldn't pay it back monetarily, you'd pay it back through your labor. Mm -hmm. And so... You swindled someone, you stole their goods, and you need to now pay it back through your labor. And so you were the slave of that master till you paid it back. Okay. Okay. All right. Third is voluntary uh, temporary slavery. This is more along the lines of indentured servitude. And this would have been a more along the lines of what was going on in, in uh, Philemon's day, which is where you have an indentured servitude of a period of time where someone voluntarily joined themselves to a master for a period of, say, seven years. And for that seven years, then they were to be beholden to that master. And that master had to treat him well. And, you know, all those laws were there. But it was completely different from what we saw in U.S. chattel slavery. There was another couple of forms of slavery in the Old Testament that were for specific circumstances, very specific circumstances that were regarded, um, that had uh, less stringent regulation, I guess you could say. And one of those was the issue of Canaanite slavery. And so that those were temporary laws that no longer apply today, let me be very clear, which allowed for the perpetual enslavement of inhabitants of the land of Canaan, the seven nations immediately surrounding Canaan, um, which is the land given to God by Israel, and the kingdoms in the land and all its, inhabit- all its inhabitants were said by God to be devoted to destruction. Um, and they were therefore 
these unique provisions that were given regarding slavery. So these are laws specifically tied to the promised land? Exactly. Specifically okay. tied to the promised land. And um, they were out of accord with the general slavery regulations that existed for all other circumstances of slavery in the Bible. Right. And so, if, for instance, you could buy and sell slaves. Uh, you could sell you, you, the children of the slaves were yours, which was never the case in other forms of slavery. And... Um, you know, you could buy and sell slaves with foreign nations and so forth. And it was, but even then it was still not based on skin color or mm -hmm. racism. Um, and even then there were still regulations that, that um, you still couldn't kill your slave. Even, right. Even, even, even the most strict form of Old Testament slavery, right. you treated the slave like an image bearer of God. Right. Because they you had still rights. still treated like a, like a human being yes. that had rights. Now, less rights right it was still a very severe state but you weren't allowed to like permanently harm him or kill him exactly. you would still be treated like a murderer in those cases which is very different than right. southern chattel slavery yeah and so the, the the typical form of slavery in the old testament was debt is not passed on to the children slavery is temporary it's tied to a time frame it's not perpetual it's not race-based slaves aren't permitted to be acquired through kidnapping um or uh or, or to have their children after them. Uh, they don't own the children, the slaves, they can't break up families, all those kinds of things, right? And so what, what did we have in the United States child slavery? We had, we had complete, the whole system was based on kidnapping from the get-go. It was based on sl the slave traders going into Africa, rounding up the most vulnerable people there, rounding them up, bringing them over on slave ships, and selling them off, splitting up their families, selling off their children, selling them into perpetual slavery where they were treated as property, where their children and their children after them were inherited and passed down by slave owners. Um, the, tens of thousands of cases of what they would call mulatto slaves that were mixed slaves, mm -hmm. which literally could only happen if there was massive amounts of rape. Mm -hmm. like, this is like genetic evidence. <laughs> And you could go right. on and on about, it is just sickening, the amount of abuses. This was not a pretty picture. And it, you could go and look at Joel McDermott's book, The Problem of Slavery in Christian America, for a taste of, of that. And I think that everybody should go and read right. that. Fr frankly, it almost seems unnecessary to talk about the horrendousness of this Sadly, sort of slavery. It, 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 it's, it should be unnecessary, but... I mean, apparently it, it is. And um, to be very, very clear, Old Testament slavery, biblical slavery uh, that was ordered by the law of God, structured by according to the law of God, always had a point. And that point was redemption. That point was always positive. The point of slavery was not to stay enslaved, it was to come out of slavery. Uh, Dr. Gary North said biblical servitude was always intended to lead men to ethical reformation and spiritual freedom. That's, that's Gary North. Can we actually honestly say that about Southern sla uh, chattel slavery based on race? No. Not at all. Slavery in the South was based on economic gain, mm -hmm. period. Yep. Yes. And the expansion of that whole industry, wanting to go West. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we already had that issue in the Caribbean. Like, it was a massive economic racist institution yes and so when douglas wilson says 
well, look at Philemon and how he treated Onesimus. And then he's making that crude comparison to any form of slavery that was going on. The best form of slavery that was going on in the United States chattel slavery with the kindest owner. You know, <laughs> kind. That's yeah, right. interesting word to use for somebody who's holding someone hostage. Um, and but trying- it had nothing to do with... Uh, the kinds of slavery that were permitted in biblical law. And there is no devoted to destruction land that that is uh, given to a certain race of people to inflict upon another race of people mm-hmm. now. There, that, that just doesn't exist. You can, there's no way you can finagle that. Right. And to be very clear, because I know this is a common objection, uh, I think some, including Douglas Wilson, in what he wrote in Black and Tan and other places, will say, well, of course I'm opposed to the abuses. Of course, I'm opposed to treating slaves poorly or uh, refusing to give them the Lord's Supper or refusing to teach them uh, God's word or only giving them an edited version of scripture that cut out the vast majority of the Old Testament because one of the major themes of the Old Testament is freedom from slavery. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, we're opposed to all of these different things. I'm not talking about anecdotes, Pastor Wilson. I'm not talking about anecdotes cross politic guys. I'm talking about the actual slavery laws in the South. Mm-hmm. This is not anecdotes. This is the actual system according to the actual penal laws. Yes. So if you're talking about Southern slavery, what else are you talking about other than the actual penal laws? Mm-hmm. Right. Not this idealized version. And that's the other problem is we'd like yeah, some to kind of gone with the wind romanticized yeah. idea about the Southern heritage myth and, and saying things like, well, they're, you know, trying to make the best of a bad situation. Well, no, you, d- you don't actually make it. You, no. you can't make it the best of a bad situation. You can seek to abolish it. Right. And that is actually treating it for what it really is. And this is another false dilemma that I hear in these different conversations, as if the only two options are, oh, just let the slaves go down to South America would be the treated worst. No, I'm just going to enslave them up here in South Carolina. Those are not the two options. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those are not the two options. Yeah, let's be very clear here. What needed to happen with anybody in the United States who was a slaveholder was for that person to be excommunicated from the church for violating kidnapping codes uh, for participating in a, in a institution which was completely based on kidnapping mm-hmm. and for holding people um, as slaves and as property in a manner that is not allowed by scripture. And what is the, uh, the, the penalty in scripture for kidnapping? Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death, Exodus 21, 16. There's, there's the Bible study. There you go. And let's be also very clear, the, the opposition to the form of slavery practice in the United States was not just a bunch of liberal, skeptic, atheists who hated God and um, called themselves abolitionists. And uh, although there were those. <laughs> but the, the opposition to abolition was also made by uh, those who feared God, those who who looked at God's law carefully and who took apart piece by piece the the attempted efforts of the slaveholders to um, to vindicate their actions. And so, for instance, you can go and look, this is not making this up. Uh, you can go and look a, a very good history of, different uh, like Irish Covenanters, William Garrison, others, uh, uh, even Charles Spurgeon had some great quotes on this, That and, and they went through the biblical argument 
for um, the from biblical law for why U.S. chattel slavery was an abomination and why it, they weren't just treating it as oh it's sort of a little mistake you should kind of stop that no they were denying fellowship based on that right right to be to be clear I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna be publishing a paper on the abolitionist uh, history the I would say the reformed heritage of abolitionist history and it's astonishing how little that it's known about uh, if you mm. only read R. L. Dabney and, mm-hmm. and right. like and and Thornwell and abolitionism you would assume that they were all Unitarians and right. all John Browns, what's completely far from the truth. Yeah. There was a uh, two separate Reformed Presbyterians in America made up of mostly Irish-American Covenanters and other Presbyterians. Uh, at one point in time, they had about 16,000 members. 16,000 members. And the laws, the bylaws of those churches were excommunicating every single slaveholder. Right. They were it, abolitionists and immediatists by confession. That's mm-hmm. really important to note because Douglas Wilson in this blurb he makes it about inerrancy versus uh slavery and segregation like either like his response was not to yes and amen uh doug or uh ligon duncan's yeah. comment that uh, we, we need that slavery and segregation was against biblical fidelity his answer was to say well there's certain kinds of slavery that would have and we got to go to our bible and, and there's certain kinds of slavery in in, in that uh, era that were you know that's what he's implying or that were in alignment with biblical law and and we need to point that out very clearly that it's 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 not <laughs> and and you can't just put pose inerrancy against um social justice uh like who people who want to you know um who want to implement uh, righteous biblical law you know in under the guise of social justice you know right and, and to to get back to what Ligon Duckin was saying, something I would say is very un- uncontroversial. Uh, he was saying, let's treat homosexuality like the Bible says. Let's also treat slavery like the Bible says. My goodness, this this is 1 Timothy 1. Yeah. This is 1 Timothy 1. <laughs> Paul says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. This should be getting us thinking right now. Mm-hmm. Understanding this that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers. Now, keep in mind, this is this is the list of sins that <laughs> that Paul puts together in one category. For murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Amen. It's interesting he connects it with the gospel there. He connects it to the gospel. Gee, it's like he had a connection. Treating homosexuality like sin and treating slavery like sin is a matter of the gospel. Absolutely. And we right there have a nuance between the kind of slavery that was absolutely, totally prohibited enslavement and what was going on in some instances and then indentured servitude and those sorts of things that are talked about in the days of Philemon and Onesimus, right? Right. The Bible makes that, that nuance. So we must as well. And I just want to read, here's, here's a quote from Charles Spurgeon from the day, uh, uh, regarding, uh, association with slaveholders. He said, I do in my utmost soul detest slavery. And although I commune at the Lord's table with men of all creeds, yet with a slaveholder, I have no fellowship of any sort or kind. Whenever one has called upon me, I have considered it my duty to express my detestation of his wickedness. And I would as soon think of receiving a murderer into my church as a man stealer. 
Mm-hmm. I would say that's in accordance with First Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Mm-hmm. He's putting murdering and man-stealers in the same category, same as Paul. Absolutely. And if you want to get a little taste of uh, an example of a covenanter, an Irish covenanter named Alexander MacLeod, who's post-millennialist, who was making these arguments, and he would go before the General Assembly, and, and Thornwell and, and, and Dabney, they sort of said, kind of, you know, they wouldn't give him the time of day. Right. But uh, he, he was making these, like, very highly exegetical arguments against the vindicate the attempts of the slave holders right, to right. vindicate themselves. R- real quick before you quote him, I just want to say, so I, I love these covenanters. These covenanters are great because they fly in the face of the, of the, of the straw man. They fly in the mm. face of like the stereotypical abolitionist. These guys, these Presbyterian hardcore confessional, like more confessional than I am, you know, these hardcore post-millennial confessional Presbyterian covenanters they make the Southern Presbyterians and R.L. Dabney's denomination look like Baptists Yeah. when it comes to like who's <laughs> reformed and who's not reformed, which is like a game I really don't like to play. But my goodness, uh-huh. these guys are the reformed of the reformed. All right. So let's see your Alexander McLeod, and we'll link to this uh, article in the show notes. But let's read some of this. There were two classes of aliens with respect to which the Israelitish law gave directions. Those who belonged to any of the neighboring Canaanitish tribes in particular and such as belonged to other nations in general. With respect to the latter, the law was exactly the same as to the Hebrews themselves. Leviticus 24.20 Ye shall have one manner of law as well for the stranger as for one of your own country. Verse 35, next chapter. If thy brother be waxen poor, then thou shalt relieve him, yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner. But there are particular exceptions from this general rule, general law, which guaranteed from invasion the life, the liberty, and the property of aliens. These exceptions referred to the remains of the conquered tribes living among the Israelites or to such of the nations of Canaan as were around them. Leviticus 24, or Leviticus 25, 44, and 45. Of the heathen that are around you, ye shall buy bondmen and bondmaid. But of, of the children of the strangers that sojourn among you, shall ye buy. And of the families which they begat in your land, this permission was merciful. The descendants of Abraham were expressly appointed the executioners of the divine sentence against the tribes of Canaan. Extermination was the command, but on their voluntary subjection, they were only reduced into a state of servitude. The Israelites were forbidden to use them harshly. Exodus 21, 26. Accordingly, the Gibeonites, when they craftily obtained the safety of their lives, were reduced into the situation of bondservants, Joshua 9. When Saul treated them with cruelty, God was offended and even punished David because he did not avenge that cruelty on the house of Saul at an early part of his reign, 2 Samuel 21 1. I proceed. To prove that this example is not for our imitation, the Israelites themselves had no right to fit their ships with their implements of cruelty in order to steal, buy, stow away, and chain men of other nations living without injury to them at a distance from their shores. Had they done so, no future traffic would have rendered their prizes legitimate. They were officially employed by heaven to punish the iniquity of the nations that they had vanquished. They were ordered to subdue, destroy, or enslave the descendants of Canaan and take possession of the land covenanted to their father Abraham. As a peculiar people, they were to be kept distinct until Messiah should come. The remains of four nations could not, therefore, be admitted to the rights of citizenship. The wall of partition is now broken down. All mankind are our brethren. There is no similarity of circumstances between us and the ancient Hebrews, no divine permission that can justify us in holding slaves. Although the slavery were exactly the same with that with that into which the blacks are reduced, the practice of modern nations would remain unjustifiable. 
Mike drop. Good, good stuff. Could you say that again in the Irish accent? <laughs> <laughs> to <laughs> prove that this example is not for our li- I think imitation. that's more Scottish, but yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, oh, no, that's Scottish. That's a mouthful, man. man. That's good stuff. That's, that's, we'll, that's, we'll link to the article. That's really good stuff. Yeah, you need to check that article out. Uh, hey, real quick, we need to take a break. We're going to come back and talk Dat Postmill some more. Probably tie it to this discussion, especially when we think about the history of America and where America's headed now and what the post-millennial hope is. Good stuff, gentlemen. All right. We'll be right back. I'm born again, I got peace of mind. The peace of mind that he gives. Yeah. And I ain't got to write deeper lines, because he's as deep as it gets. Yes. He's a high priest who sits. Yes. He sits all in his throne. Uh-huh. He's the only one who's equipped for our sins. He did atone. Don't you see that Jesus purchased me? Uh-huh. See the blood on that mercy seat? As a man, he was born in Bethlehem, but he's from eternity. Now that's Bible. Micah 5 2. You believe he's God? Yes, I do. The only hero to die for the villains that's poetic, like Haku. I was pathetic and prideful. Yeah. Sin debt, I should have died too. Worship many idols. In my own eyes, I was wise too. At the right time, when we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Yes. Now, right rhymes for him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. Amen. 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 I said it first. Hey, welcome. (laughs) Welcome back to Crossing Crown Radio. We had uh, a whole lot of stuff we want to talk about with Post Mill, but we just can't move on. We were kind of (laughs) joking at the break. We have more to discuss. There's more content related to the issue of slavery. And it's important to know our history. It's important to know the future in terms of scripture. And really, Jordan, I guess we want to make an affirmation here. Right. Well, one thing that I think we need to point out is that Douglas Wilson had something right. And what he had right is he responded to a question about something going on in the contemporary scene, which was what Lincoln Duncan was talking about. And in answering that question, he took it back to a view of the history. Now, he got it wrong. <laughs> he has a wrong view of U.S. chattel slavery and its comparison to slavery in, in the New Testament. That the comparison that he made. But as a post-millennialist, Douglas Wilson cares about the future. Mm-hmm. And he does care about inerrancy. Um, and so what he does get right is that he knows that getting the history right matters for the future. And so people might be asking, well, why are we even talking about this issue? All this stuff that happened. And well, you see how what happens in the contemporary space um, is related to what happens in history. And if we, as post-millennialists, who love the law of God, we're theonomic, and we want to affect true biblical justice, not social justice Marxism, but we want true biblical justice, if we want to affect that, how are we going to do that if we're saying that what was going on in the U- in the U.S. Confederate South 
was a good picture of biblical law applied. If we're getting that wrong, we have not only are we going to fail in the future, we have no right to go forward in the future and implement what we call biblical law, which is really just a return to U.S. chattel slavery in the Mm -hmm. Confederate South. And so that's where we draw the line Mm -hmm. with Douglas Wilson. I love Douglas Wilson's post-millennialism. I love his commitment to inerrancy. The problem is that we need to understand the times and what was going on in the uh, in the in the ni- in the 1860s was was like an 8070 situation where because the South was on some level a Christian entity that they were judged for their failure against their brother uh, all the more harshly. And so when we when you had what happened in the Civil War and the complete uh, destruction of the South, you had it wasn't just an oopsie daisy, as you said in the break. Mm-hmm. It, what was going on in, in U.S. chattel slavery wasn't just something they needed to tweak to make it a little better. It needed to be burned to the ground, and it was. And that's not to to say that the North was some bastion of of Christianity. It was far from it. It was it was more evil in terms of covenantal apostasy. Except the, it, the South was a covenantal apostasy. The North, they were just like pagans, basically, mm-hmm. many of them anyways. Um, but God used them in his providence to, to, to judge what was going on with right. shadow slavery. I think oftentimes people make the mistake of having to choose a side. Mm-hmm. As right. if you have to be diehard supporters of Abraham Lincoln in the North or diehard supporters of the Confederate South and R.L. Yeah. Dabney and so on and so forth. And I think that's a, another false dilemma. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it might be like a theme of tonight. It's like I am not a South hater and I'm not really a North hater. I think they're both very flawed. Right. And I think both had some good qualities. I'll take the Trinitarian theology of R.L. Dabney any day. Right. But his theology on defending Virginia and the institution of slavery was pagan. Yeah. And, and, and I think a lot of times, uh, yeah, I, I see this in libertarian authors like Thomas de Lorenzo and Thomas Woods and some other men who I have a lot of respect for in different, in different ways, but in their disdain for Abraham Lincoln, the tyrant, and mm-hmm. he who was a tyrant, was yes. a tyrant. <laughs> right. We <laughs> acknowledge know? that. We was a tyrant, mm-hmm. and for their disdain for uh, Northern Republican, you know, um, uh, Northern Republican uh, economic policies, so on and so forth, tariffs, um, big civil infa- civil infrastructure funding and taxation, and for from because of their disdain for that they then make it almost seem like the South was better than it was. Yeah. If you want to know about the North's complicity, then pick up Joel McDermott's Problem of Slavery in Christian America. It mm-hmm. goes into great detail about all the crap things that were going on with the yeah. North. Yeah. I mean, the simple, the simple version of it is both sides were very bad for different reasons. Right, right. And so just to go back when we, to that whole idea of tweaking versus we need to completely end it, when Douglas Wilson brought up John Broadus, he was talking about him as sort of an example that sort of seem to more fall in line with what the New Testament biblical um, morality was around mm-hmm. slavery. Who is this guy again? So John Broadus, he was the, one of the founders, him and Boyce, of Southern Slavery. Uh, sorry. <laughs> oh, ouch. <laughs> Southern <laughs> Seminary. Just rolls Seminary. off the tongue. Seminary. Socialist Southern Wowza. Seminary. Yeah. You said a um, lot there. So he was the one of the founders of Southern Seminary. And he... He and Boyce were both slave owners. Boyce was a little more enthusiastic, let's say, about his slave owning. Um, 
Broadus was a little more apologetic about it. And I think this is probably where Wilson gets his sort of treatment of Broadus. But here's a, here's a quote from Broadus about um, sort of his idea, uh, his sympathies for the institution. He says, quote, We must not forget that the Negroes differ widely among themselves, having come from different races in Africa and having had very different relations to the white people while held in slavery. Many of them are greatly superior to others in character, but the great mass of them belong to a very low grade of humanity. We have to deal with them as best we can. While a large number of other white people stand off at a distance and scold us, not a few of our fellow citizens at the North feel and act very nobly about the matter, but the number is sadly great who do nothing and seem to care nothing but to find fault. Okay. So this. So you're telling me when, because what Douglas Wilson will say is, look, this is a gospel issue. We got to do this in biblical parameters. He's Colossians four one, right? He's a great master. Do great masters talk about blacks being an inferior race? That's no. not. No. No. I mean that's a direct well, quote this, from this man. This this well, sort it's of explicitly dehumanizing. Yeah, yeah, and this is the this is the rationalization for doing what he does, and it's sort of like, oh well, no one else is doing any better. No one's helping us. Well, you know what you could do if you wanted to help them, you could give them their freedom, right? And and if they wanted to come and work for you for you know their own voluntary choice, and if you wanted to give them a roof and and board as payment, and just continue the same situation, just make it voluntary then you could have done that. And guess what? Many slave owners who were convicted and repented, I mean, clearly not enough, clearly a minority, but there were a good number of slaveholders that repented, who freed their slaves, and who, who said, and they can't, the slaves would stay on, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe they didn't have any other option. But, but the idea that either you hold them hostage or there's, you know, or there's, there's no other option, is another fallacy. John uh, Broadus, that Douglas Wilson says is sort of holds up as this sympathetic figure in slavery. No, if he's holding slaves and he's holding them hostage and they're victims of kidnapping, then no, I would not fellowship with John Broadus. You know, right, right. And, and the whole idea that John Broadus didn't personally go and hunt this guy down in Africa and enslaved him, it, it's not an argument. Someone else did it for him. Right. Mm-hmm. Some, somebody else did it for him. And this is the same thing that R.L. Dabney does in his defense of the South. I'm sorry, defense of Virginia. Virginia yeah. um, he, he essentially makes the argument that these slaves were not captured by Southern plantation owners and slaveholders. They're captured by slavers and then sold to us. Mm-hmm. Well, this does two things. First of all, it establishes uh, that R.L. Dabney is fully aware that they're stolen. And second of all, it establishes guilt upon men such as R.L. Dabney That's and all, all other men who make the same argument because it admits that they willfully and knowingly bought stolen human beings, Mm -hmm. which makes them complicit in their theft to go right back to Exodus 21 and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Hmm. So John brought us to answer what they were discussing in cross politic, excommunicate them. And then in a theonomic society, execute them. Yeah. Which is obviously sounds very harsh, but that is what, the Bible study will lead us to. It's not harsh mm-hmm. at all. What What is harsh is enslaving a fellow human being made in the image of God. That is what is harsh, right? Yeah. And 
And we know that racism was the fuel for all of this, as I just read. Clearly, he regards the mass of blacks as of very low-grade humanity. Um, you know, R.L. Dabney, his fuel for all of this was that they just blacks were just occupied a different station in life based on who they were. And he would say things like, oh, no, we need to preach the gospel to them. And, um, you know, they're still humans. They're not, uh, he didn't buy into the, the uh, line of um, um, ham, curse of ham. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, argument. Or like the, the racialism, the kind of genetic racialism. Well, he was racial for sure. But yeah, but that there was a, there was a curse of ham argument that basically made blacks not even human as a basis for ah, slavery. Gotcha. He went against that. But then that didn't make him now ethical. Right. He was there was still all this racism that was fueling. So one of his quotes was, we know that the African has become, according to a well-known law of natural history, by the manifold influences of the ages, a different fixed species of the race Mm. separated from the white man by traits, bodily, mental and moral, almost as rigid and permanent as those of genus. Hence, the offspring of an amalgamation must be a hybrid race, stamped with all the feebleness of the hybrid and incapable of the career of civilization and glory as an independent race. And this apparently is the destiny destiny which our conquerors have in view, if indeed they can mix the blood of the heroes of Manassas with this vile stream from the fens of Africa. Then they will never again have occasion to tremble before the righteous resistance of Virginian freemen but will have a race supple and vile enough to fill that position of political subjection, which they desire to fix on the South. Hmm. So, and we are not positioning ourselves here as these, you know, we're thumping our chests and saying, look at us. We know better. The history was, you know, we have this like 2020 vision now because it's hindsight. We are not puffing our chests up and saying, Oh, look at Dabney. Like he's long since been dead. He's, you know, easy to to criticize because of this, that, and the other. It's not about that. It's about a covenantal understanding of history and what God does in history to move us forward, right? Amen. And, there there was men back then, godly men, who opposed Dabney, who opposed, you mm-hmm. know, brought us and all of these institutions at the time. So we don't need to beat our chest. The men beating their chest were doing it back then. Right. And unfortunately they were shouted down. <laughs> right. Right. I, I sometimes hear the argument that, you know, these are just men of their time. They didn't know better. Right. No, they actually wrote scathingly against the abolitionists who mm-hmm. were telling them it was sin. Mm-hmm. They are fully aware right. of the biblical arguments against slavery and they rejected them. Yes. And so because we want to move forward, we can, we have to get this kind of thing, right? We're not going to have any credibility with anyone, you know, and most importantly, before God to mm-hmm. go through and say, please bless the social order that we want to create moving forward. Um, and we can't even get the most simple, clear. Mm-hmm. And, and sorry, the issue of slavery is not a morally, you know, ambiguous situation. It was wrong. It was wrong. It should never have happened. And we need to recognize that, not to wallow in it, but so that we can move forward. Mm-hmm. The biblical pattern for advance is always first repent. Uh, analyze the mistakes of the past, confess any of your involvement in it, repent, and you may not have personally held slaves, but there are certain thought patterns of um, that could have contributed to that system or what have you. Repent for anything that you own in that and say, no, that wasn't right. And then, then you can move forward. 
right? Because then you'll have the moral credibility to mm-hmm. move forward. Mm-hmm. And we're not trying to pander to anyone. We're trying to, what does God require of us is the only fundamental question. Right. So all of that kind of then connects to a post-millennial vision. And, you know, that deserves its own episode, and I'm sure we'll get to it eventually. But when we think about history, we do need to be able to also hold, in the other hand, future expectations. We live in the present based on our anticipations, assumptions about about the future. And, and I think that's where a lot of this goes wrong, because a lot of, if you would have actually spent the time to read your Old Testament, uh, you know, let's say you're whoever you are in, you know, 150 years ago, you're in, you're uh, in the midst of this civil war in America and you're sort of contemplating, well, what does the Bible teach? What are the, what is the future expectation that we should have? Well, it's not owning black people. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) To point out the obvious. (laughs) There are some fundamental, how to put this direction of the law, if you will. There's like a fundamental understanding of, where history is headed, which is liberty in Christ, freedom of man from the dominion of man. That is where we're going. Mm-hmm. So if you think that you can make a biblical argument in favor of a Southern chattel slavery uh, system, then you're not going in the right direction. You're going backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're, you're embracing the covenantal sanction of God's law against wickedness and, and sort of trying to decorate it in a right. way that's more palatable or something. And it's like putting lipstick on a pig. There you go. And so it's not like, yeah, let's have a Bible study and, and let's do one right now. Because when you think about the horrific nature of chattel slavery, the horrific nature of the Civil War, my goodness, you know, 600,000 plus people dead mm-hmm. fighting over this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and actually one, one, one book I read about it, a lot of the majority of the deaths came toward the very end when it was sort of like they knew things weren't going um, well. But when you think about um, Scripture, the anticipation of Christ's reign from the Old Testament all the way into the New, how does the Bible talk about those things? And that's really what I want to you know, sort of coast our way through the end of this episode and just looking at the post-millennial hope. And really what I want to do is from Psalm chapter 2. And I'm going to have you guys look up some verses, all right? so Let's do it. All right, Jordan, you look at Acts 4. All right. Acts 4, 25 to 26. And then um, John, look at Acts 13, 33. And I, I'm just going to read this because there's there's a this principle um, dates back to the, you know, the time of Paul, of course, but even the reformers spoke a lot of it. Scriptura, scripturum, interpretatur. Scripture interprets scripture. And it's the idea that in the Bible itself, you have the New Testament acting as an apostolic study Bible. Mm-hmm. It's the notes of the Old Testament. It's interpreting the Old Testament based on, on the, the presence of Christ, his, his coming into the world. And one of the things, you know, <laughs> when you think about the, what we just talked about for most of the episode, the, this chattel slavery and the absolute wickedness, and then you connect it to our modern day abortion industry, and, and you see the same arguments being made and perpetuated and all this stuff, what we need to be doing is being grounded in Scripture. And one of the things we can do is look at a passage like Psalm 2. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this, and then I want you, Jordan, I'm going to point to you first and hit Acts 4, 25 gotcha. and 26. All right. So uh, it starts out this way. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. What does Peter say 
in Acts 4, 25 and 26. He says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So Psalm 2, already the very first three verses, Peter says is about the religious leaders putting Christ to death. Right. right? So right. They're, they're the nations raging. And then you get to verses 4 through 7 in Psalm 2. It says, He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord has them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. John, what does Acts 13, 33 say? This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Yeah, he says in verse 7, I, I didn't keep reading, I will tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So in Acts, Paul says that that scripture is fulfilled when? When Christ was raised from the dead. So we already have his death, mm-hmm. we have his resurrection. Mm-hmm. And he says the same thing in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that basically he, um, Jesus was established as the Son of God. It was the begottenness of, of Christ at his resurrection. And then go to Revelation okay. 2. And you can go to Revelation 19, John. Got it. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What's Revelation 2, 26 and 27? Revelation 2, 26 and 27. The one who conquers and who keeps my work until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself has received have received authority from my Father. And then Revelation 19.15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will... Tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. So the post-millennial hope, we would say we are grounding this in Scripture. We are, uh, we're saying that Jesus is Lord. He's the, he's the King. And then you look at the New Testament. What does the New Testament actually teach? Well, here we have his um, establishment as Lord, as he's ruling and reigning over history. That verse usually in Revelation 19 is all about the second coming, right? It's the second coming when he comes to establish his kingdom. He's going he's gonna to come down with a sword out of his mouth and he's going to kill a bunch of people. Well, that's actually not at all. If we would just read it in light right. of what Psalm 2 tells us, we're given the answer. We have his death, his resurrection, and his current ascension, his session as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he's conquering the nations by the word of God. That's like you're translating scripture by scripture, not translating, but interpreting scripture I, I, by scripture instead of by the newspapers. Look, I'm just doing that. <laughs> but it's when Christ is, is, like you said, is when Christ is resurrected, he is then enthroned. And he's enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Amen. And the famous verse... Psalm 110.1, ask of me and I will give you your inheritance, the nations, right? right. And um, and sit at my right, or Psalm 110.1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And that verse is the most quoted verse in the entire New Testament. It's 20, I think 25 times it's quoted in the New Testament. It's, it's important. It, it matters. Yeah. And it's always tied to Christ's enthronement. So when Christ is ascended before the Father. He sits down at the right hand of the Father, and he's there waiting for something to happen. What is that? 
Right. And, and you go to like a place like Matthew 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathering together, Jesus asked them this question, what do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David by the spirit calls him Lord saying, and here's Psalm 10, 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. He shuts the whole thing down by establishing a ba- basically Jesus is David's son and he's David's Lord. Yes. Right. So, I mean, that's the clearest exposition I can find in the New Testament yeah. on that. And, and Peter makes it explicit in Acts 2, just a couple verses before we read in chapter 3. He's tying the ascension to this verse specifically. In Acts chapter 2, verses 32, he said, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of the Father, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and here it is, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he's explicitly saying Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's seated there until his enemies are being made his footstool. And and a point I want to make, too, is in this whole discussion with uh, American history, with slavery, sort of this view of the future, eschatology usually gets sort of dumbed down to what's going to happen in the future. But post-millennialism is actually not that. Mm -hmm. Post-millennialism is actually what has already taken place in history. Because we don't have this this scheme of a seven-year tribulation and a future millennial reign of Christ. We see the millennium being his current session as the Lord, as you know, he's on David's throne, ruling and reigning. Um, in in First Corinthians fifteen twenty-five, happens to be my favorite verse. He's going to reign until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet, until yep. all of them are defeated. Right. So we're actually talking. For post-millennialists, we're actually talking about what has already taken place. That's right. So this isn't like a scheme for the future. We know that death is the last enemy. When the resurrection takes place, Christ mm-hmm. consummates the ages. We we get that. That is the future we look forward to. Right. It very much determines like what is our like our our, our driving force. What is the point? Yeah. Of all of this, and I, I can't remember who said this. It might even been Douglas Wilson. It could have been somebody else, but it's not the study of in time so much as it's the study of in things. Mm-hmm. Like what is the point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's sort of a guiding, it's a guiding hermeneutic for, especially when you attach what you might call it covenant post-millennialism and we can throw covenant in front of everything, you know, <laughs> covenant bacon cheeseburger. Uh, <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, that's extra bacon, but it's that idea though, that it's, it's the driving engine of how we act now. And, and, and really, I just want to give a, a quick smattering of old Testament passages. Just, I'm not going to read the whole text, but I think it's important. Buckle up. It'll prove my point. Psalm 22 27 and 28 says this, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. So we know that this cannot happen after he returns because there won't be an opportunity for conversion at that point. And yet, of course, the writer says there will be a day when all the ends of the earth are converted to God. So there's a bright hope. 
and then you, then you ask the question, well, how how will Christ put his enemies under his feet? And, and Psalm 2 says that he must break them with a rod of iron. If the Civil War wasn't an, an, act, wasn't an act of this rod of iron, I don't know what is. Um, so that, that, that's not after his second coming, though, nor is it the full final new heavens and new earth, for righteousness then will be perfect. And, of course, then at that point, let's state the obvious, Christ doesn't need to break anybody. <laughs> Everybody's right. it's done. So um, Psalm 72, David speaks of Christ's perfect kingdom reign as including unrighteous people who oppress righteous people, but obviously the latter will receive vindication from their king as he has dominion from sea to sea. So, I mean, this is just, this is honestly is basic stuff. This is not, you do not have to go through a whole bunch of hermeneutical gymnastics to get to this. And I think that's one of the things that was really compelling to me about postmillennialism, I, I believe the first book I ever read on it was actually Heaven Misplaced by none other than Douglas Wilson. Yeah. And then I went and read Great book. David Chilton's Days of Vengeance. And, and <laughs> I just I remember in junior high reading the Left Behind novels and I, I had my Bible in front of me a lot of times. And I was I was reading along because <laughs> I was almost using it as like a Bible study of eschatology. And I was so confused. <laughs> I was like. This is so complicated and I'm not sure how this makes sense, but I'm like, okay, I mean, this is just what Christians believe, right? Yeah. And that's what I thought in junior high. This is what just <laughs> Christians believe. I didn't think that there was other options, but, <laughs> and then, and then reading postmillennialism, I was like, okay, I can't pretend like everything makes perfect sense to me. I can't pretend as if this is crystal clear and I don't have questions or I don't have some fuzzy areas, but this makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. This is not nearly as complicated as the, uh, newspaper ex- eisegesis. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. Like in times fear mongers would let you have. Mm-hmm. And I think that that mm-hmm. it does really well sum up sort of what is going on here because if you read the, the story of the Bible, you just go read it, read your Bible, open it up, read it cover to cover, and you read the story of the Bible, you're, you're seeing that Jesus Christ is, def- you know, defeating the seed of, uh, uh, or defeating Satan and the seed of the woman is going to crush Satan and Jesus is going to bring that about. And, uh, and you see this victory that's very clear all throughout scripture. And then you see like, you know, this, these penultimate verses about sit at my right hand until I make uh, your enemies, your footstool. And then you see this, uh, this being perpetuated all throughout the new Testament, you know, Hebrews 10, 12 through 13, uh, that Jesus, uh, when, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So it's like, yeah, very simple. But then we have some interesting passages that come up, especially in the Gospels, and this weird imminence that is all throughout the New Testament. And I think because a lot of people sort of picked up a hermeneutic of Scripture that disassociated what the original audience would have understood given the covenantal uh, store, uh, progress of the story of the Bible and what was going on in their day, because they sort of gave that up and they put sort of their 20, 21st century glasses on and try to read it from that perspective, you start to see all of these terrible things happening and promise to happen in the Bible. And so, as you know, if you're, re- if you're reading those passages and you're hearing those it's, there seems to be sort of a contradiction. Mm. And what I think this is important is for a lot of people to be able to come to post-millennialism, they first have to understand preterism and specifically the impact of what was going on 
in that age with 70 AD rapidly approaching. Mm-hmm. You have to understand that Christ had promised uh, that um, the, the way, the, the form of um, this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. And that included like all this apocalyptic language. And this was promised for uh, that it would affect all people in the church and that there, would, there was this imminent conflagration coming and it was right around the corner. And so people take that away from what happened with 8070 and they push it to our time as what we can all expect. And it creates an obstacle for embracing what is a really simple and clear teaching of what I think is the post-millennial view yeah. of eschatology. Yeah. First Corinthians 10, I think Paul says, you know, these things happen as an example and it's for us on whom the end of the ages has come. Has come. Right. And there's all this last days discussion, Hebrews 1, um, and a whole lot of other places. And it's this idea of the old age is going away, and it was fully and finally done in AD 70. That was it. Right. The only overlap of the ages was then, between mm-hmm. Christ's resurrection and AD 70. The, right. the symbol of the temple being destroyed, being the last remnant of the old covenant. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there is no future retemple to be built. Christ isn't going to return to preside over sacrifices he came to abolish. Now, all that's just, it's, well, it, that's a whole other episode. We can <laughs> right, it's like debunking. The bride of Christ being the new temple and all that. All of that. I mean, it's it, all there, this, yeah. there, there is a certain detox that you need to go through if you haven't looked into preterism at all, and you're, you've been reading the Gospels, Matthew 24, Luke 21, 20, 21, Mark 13, and you've been reading these passages as applying to your future, there is a certain sort of detox that needs to happen. Right. And we want to be compassionate about it, too, because I've been there. Me too. Mm -hmm. I've been there, and I kind of make fun of myself as the junior high kid reading uh, (laughs) the Left Behind novels. I mean, let's let's be clear. My family named our dogs after Left Behind novel characters. (laughs) Chloe? Yeah, we had a dog named Chloe, and we had a dog named Buck. That's right. (laughs) Good dog names. (laughs) Yeah, they're actually good dog names. They were good dogs, too. But... (laughs) <laughs> we were really into it, you know, I, and I was, I was really into it. It's funny. I read them all except the very last one. I had mm. given up by that point, but, um, yeah, well, we're so patient. I, I, all... I just, I just want to be compassionate about it because yeah. to a lot of people just in kind of the evangelical world, they think that this is just what Christianity is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're all dispensationalists or all, they all have this view of premillennialism and they think, uh, this sort of rapture theology is just what it is, and that's the mm-hmm. only option. Mm-hmm. And so they hear something different, whether it's a post-millennial view, like like what we're talking about, or maybe even an all-millennial view, uh, which is like our cousins who aren't, you know, they're not quite there, but, you know. <laughs> but uh, uh, we just want to be compassionate about it. So yeah. look into this. Like, look into this. We'll post some articles in the in the, in the the show notes, and we'll suggest some books, and... Uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I really, truly believe that this clarifies so many issues that were are a problem to people. Atheists use some of these verses as kind of a gotcha and they're not a problem. Yeah. And, and, and lastly, this really focuses with the, what the point of the church is and the progression of the church and where we're headed and where you're headed is very, very important to determine what you're doing now. Yep. Yeah, I think we need to also recognize one other sort of obstacle is the New Testament has a lot to say about suffering, how to endure suffering. And sometimes people can mistakenly think that if you're post-millennial, then you must think that there's no more suffering to be had. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Right. Uh, in fact, post-millennialism recognizes that the point A 
of now to the point B of all enemies under Christ's feet is not a straight line. <laughs> it could, mm-hmm. There could be a 500-year stretch where it's all downhill and then a 1,500-year stretch where it goes more uphill. And you, your whole life might be in that downhill stretch where you know the cultural institutions, everything is sort of on the wane, everything's going down. But our hope isn't in looking at the newspapers and seeing what's going on. We need, we're called to be faithful and God will take care of the rest. Yeah. And sometimes that means real. you'll be a part of real suffering. Everyone will go through some amount of suffering. You're going to die. Everyone's going to die, right? And we have hope. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. But there is suffering we're going to have. And, and relational suffering, social political suffering, economic suffering, all of those things can still and do happen in the post-millennial scheme. We just see where it's ultimately headed. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and we recognize that it's not a guarantee that every single society will always have Christianity completely marginalized. It's already not been the case in history. Right. But some people take these suffering verses and say, see, every, if a society is, uh, if a church in a society is faithful, then it will be marginalized and it will be persecuted and it will be overrun. And that's not actually the case. Right. That's, well, I think that's the distinction I'd want. Eventually to make. being overrun stops. Right. Because okay. we actually are promised the ultimate victory. So it's Satan's I mean, kingdom who's ultimately being overrun yeah. in history. Exactly. Yeah. And I really like what you're saying, Jordan, because it very much is a matter of perspective and we shouldn't base our theology uh, on our own personal perspectives. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why post millennialism as a, a theology in the church took a nosedive in popularity after World War One. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not a, just a, an, an accident. Right. That it lost popularity after World War One and then World War Two, and everybody was like, "Oh, what was me?" You mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. But we should not base our theology on our own personal experiences. And uh, unfortunately, what happened with a lot of that is that the post millennialism that was around back then didn't have a real high regard for the transcendent aspects of God's law. They right. weren't very theonomic, and so you had sort of the welfare state and sort of these socialist things that had sort of a Christian post mill banner on them like a social gospel right kinda, which yeah. is why i am a pipe hitting i'll always say it pipe hitting post-millennialist <laughs> but it's got to be tied to a theonomic respect for god's law or else Amen. it just goes haywire yeah. under the Amen. banner of christianity yeah and ultimately just like you're saying jordan we might have some persecution ultimately this is why every time we talk about the post-millennial hope that hope is in christ amen whether or not the kingdom is you know, almost built and we're like Mm -hmm. really, really close Mm -hmm. or things are looking really good or things are really, really looking bad. Our hope, our post-millennial hope is in Christ. Mm -hmm. And our call is to be faithful today. And so all of that is connected as we wrap up just one final thought for me and then, and then we'll go. But when we think about gospel proclamation, you know, we, we did a little bit of a Bible study here (laughs) a few times. Gospel proclamation looks like this the whole the gospel is an announcement it's the announcement from the capital city of heaven it's an edict it's signed by Christ's blood and it's an edict that declares that there's a new king the king has been established the rulers of the age have been deposed mm-hmm. they're despots they have no future christ is defeating them and and now everybody's job is to simply come along <laughs> lay down your arms. We're after unconditional surrender. We have a robust black coffee, you know, pipe hitting in your words, um, <laughs> gospel proclamation, and we mean it. And it's not, we're not here to compromise with, with the age. We're not here to compromise on these issues. We are here to declare that Christ has been established as king. Amen. Amen. So, well, that's... May he reign forever. Yeah. May we all be bondservants of Christ Amen. only.
Amen. Amen. Good deal. Hey, thanks for uh, listening. Thanks for joining us. You can check out our website, crosscrownchurch.com. You can go to our store there. We have the 10% off code again, CC Store Launch. And check us out on Facebook. Facebook, uh, you have two pages. We have the Cross and Crown Church page. We have the Cross and Crown Radio page. That's it for us. We'll catch you next time. Adios. Grace and peace. Let me drop on this topic that I have your eyes pop out your socket. Cause when I first heard about this doctrine, I was like, you bugger, stop it. Now I love it and profit. Cause view that nothing is stopping the gospel. Russia, the Kazakhstan, and the brothers at Comic Con. Got some Germans listening to sermons while they swerve on the Autobahn. The curse has been reversed. The first fruit from the earth is on its throne. The church is dispersing his word to the whole earth. Worship's God alone. Authority and power has been granted to the Son of Man. Rewarded for obedience. Read Psalm 2 so you understand. Messiah has received the signet ring that every king will kiss. His kingdom is established in heaven. That means everything is his. So what should we expect from the rest of our human history just death and doom and misery no wound abuse and victory isaiah said the prince of peace would rule over a vast domain the increase of his government began when he rose and smashed the grave so check out matthew 13 because those parables will back my claims Pray that nations would embrace him, he'll wipe the past away. By an act of grace, compassion compels us to tell them wrath awaits. We're hopeful because we know the global church will end up crashing gates. Hades can't withstand the hand the Son of Man extends to the bride. And this is not only addressing life in heaven or the end of time. The age to come is dawning, now the Holy Spirit's proof of that. The whole earth is his footstool, this is holy ground, remove your cap. What if I told you scripture for Caesar time on planet earth? Well, men will study war no more, no dropping bombs or cannon bursts. Are you so predisposed to believing we have to vanish first? That Christ has to physically come again to save his damaged church? The picture are the God can overcome the fact that man is cursed his arm too short to reach us if he did should i think his hand is hurt i'm singing in the prophets knowledge will spread across the land let micah 2 enlighten you with a promise he'll accomplish fam